Good morning. I'm James Hellman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, August 12th. In today's news, all outbound flights from Hong Kong are canceled as protesters occupy the airport. Most mass shootings in the United States are too quickly forgotten. And the UAE, a stalwart ally, is distancing itself from the U.S. as tensions with Iran mount. But first, the big idea. Corrections officers had not checked in on financier and registered sex offender Jeffrey Epstein for several hours before he was found hanging in his cell on Saturday. It's just one in a series of missteps in the hours leading up to his death. Officers should have been checking on Epstein, who was being held in a special housing unit of the Metropolitan Correctional Center in New York City every 30 minutes. And under normal circumstances, he also should have had a cellmate. But a person who had been assigned to share a cell with Epstein was transferred on Friday. And for reasons that investigators are still exploring, he did not receive a new cellmate. That left Epstein, who had previously been placed on suicide watch, alone and unmonitored, at least in the hours before his death, by even those officers assigned to guard him. That's according to several sources who spoke to my colleagues Matt Zapatosky and Devlin Barrett, who were on the Justice Department beat. This incident, which authorities classified initially as an apparent suicide, has triggered multiple investigations of how such a high-profile inmate could have died in federal custody. The FBI, the Justice Department's Inspector General, and the New York City Medical Examiner are looking into what happened. This has also caused outrage among his victims, who had hoped that Epstein's trial, scheduled for next year, would produce the justice that they thought he had long evaded. The two corrections officers assigned to watch the special unit in the detention center where Epstein was being housed were working overtime. The president of the union for staffers said one was forced to do so by management. Serene Gregg, president of the American Federation of Government Employees, Local 3148, said the correction center is functioning with less than 70% of the needed correctional officers, forcing many to work mandated overtime of 60 or 70 hour work weeks. She said one of the individuals assigned to watch Epstein's unit didn't normally work as a correctional officer at all, but like others in roles such as counselor and teacher, were able to do so. It's not clear how much of any of the incident or authorities' check-ins was captured on camera. That's one of the things investigators are looking at. E.O. Young, the national president of the Council of Prison Locals, C-33, said that while cameras are prevalent in this facility, he didn't believe that they generally capture what's going on in the cells of inmates. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start the week. Number one, the Hong Kong government canceled all departing flights from the island after an estimated 5,000 pro-democracy protesters flooded into the airport. This is the 10th straight week of mass demonstrations against the regime. The terminal of one of the world's busiest international hubs became so packed that by early evening, officials were forced to halt all departures. After more than two months of these protests and now over 600 arrests, many under questionable circumstances, police are intensifying their crackdown, unleashing new and more aggressive tactics. Officers on Sunday disguised themselves as protesters to nab suspects. They launched tear gas inside subway stations, and they fired on protesters at close range with less than lethal ammunition. One young woman was shot in the face, it's captured on video, with what appeared to be a beanbag round, severely injuring her eye. 
The police actions are part of broader efforts from the Hong Kong government with support from officials in Beijing to bring an end to the political crisis through an approach that includes ramping up pressure on businesses, leveling heavily charges against everyone who's arrested, and using the state-controlled media to pump out increasingly shrill conspiratorial claims about the protests and who's organizing them. The hospital authority says 45 people were injured during the weekend protests and 25 remain in the hospital. Two are in serious condition. The government, in what has become a weekly ritual, condemned the protesters on Monday and said that a police officer was injured after being hit with a firebomb tossed by one of the demonstrators. Number two, angry and fearful Americans are struggling to talk about guns and race a week after the latest mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton. In Omaha, Nebraska, Republican Congressman Don Bacon held a town hall meeting for his constituents. Half came to cheer him on for his staunch defense of the Second Amendment and President Trump. The rest glared at him silently and pushed him to support gun control. The debate seemed stuck. Attendees were skeptical of each other's motives, blind to each other's needs, and unsure how to start a productive conversation. There was plenty of civility, but little left to say. In 2007, a teenager killed eight people right near where Bacon held his meeting, three weeks before Christmas. The shooter opened fire with his stepdad's AK-47 assault rifle at a department store. The attacker briefly grabbed the nation's attention before fading from memory, like so many other killings. The store closed for 16 days during the height of the holiday season to patch the bullet holes and mop up the blood. Today, a plaque reading, In Memory of Those Lost, hangs underneath the escalator to the men's department. Before the El Paso shooting at a Walmart, this was the largest mass killing at a shopping venue in U.S. history. Samantha Flynn, who's 24 now, lost her mom that day. Her mother was staffing the gift wrapping desk at the store when she was killed. Samantha remembers that back then it was huge news, but now she says a lot of people tell her they don't even remember that there was a shooting when she says her mom died in the department store. Even people who have lived their whole lives in Omaha. Number three, a Saudi-led military coalition fighting in Yemen targeted its own allies with airstrikes on Sunday, a day after southern separatists seized control of the strategic port city of Aden from a U.S.-supported government. This is a big deal because it threatens to fracture the Saudi alliance and open a new front in the five-year conflict. Yemen, the Middle East's poorest nation, has already been in the grips of what the United Nations describes as the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Even before the damage from those strikes had been assessed, the UN said Sunday that as many as 40 people had been killed and 260 more were injured in the previous four days of clashes in Aden that erupted on the eve of one of Islam's holiest periods. Tens of thousands of civilians in the city on the Red Sea nestled on the tip of the Arabian Peninsula have fled their homes, while many others remain trapped without basic necessities, including food and water, according to aid workers who were there. The seizure of Aden has exposed divisions within the Sunni Muslim coalition that was led by Saudi Arabia and the UAE that intervened in the conflict back in March 2015. Together, they've been battling Iran-allied Shiite rebels known as the Houthis to restore Yemen's internationally recognized government and prevent Tehran from gaining regional influence. But rifts have emerged over the past 18 months between the southern separatists, backed by the UAE, and the forces aligned with Yemen's government, backed by the Saudis. As Elizabeth Kendall, a Yemen scholar at Oxford, explains, it's becoming increasingly obvious that the UAE and Saudi Arabia do not share the same end goals in Yemen 
even though they share the same overarching goal of pushing back on the perceived influence of Iran. Bigger picture, the UAE has been pulling away from the United States as it finds itself caught in the tug of war between Washington and Tehran. One of America's staunchest allies in the region is increasingly breaking ranks, calling into question how reliable an ally it would be in the event of a war with Iran. In the weeks since the U.S. dispatched naval reinforcements to the Persian Gulf to deter Iranian threats to shipping, the UAE government has sent a Coast Guard delegation to Tehran to discuss maritime security, upsetting the State Department. After mines exploded on tankers off the UAE's coast in June, the UAE stood apart from the U.S. and Saudi Arabia to decline to blame Iran. Former U.S. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis once nicknamed the UAE Little Sparta because of its stalwart support for the U.S. military and its foreign adventures from Somalia to Afghanistan. Much of the recent war against ISIS was launched from the U.S. airbase located at Al-Dafra in the UAE. It's truly an integral part of America's security footprint in the Middle East. But my colleague Liz Sly has been talking to the Emiratis in Abu Dhabi, and they're telling her that they've decided to shift gears. Now they're pushing for de-escalation with Iran and distancing themselves from Trump's bellicose rhetoric. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, August 12th. Thanks so much for listening. A quick note, if you listen to the show via Siri, recent episodes weren't uploading properly to the Siri podcast feed, but we've fixed that issue. So thank you for your patience. And again, thank you for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.